it is socially expected that everyone accepts each other for who they are. We don't like to challenge each other. We don't like to say that somebody is wrong. Uh, we don't like to sound judgmental. We don't like to criticise. And at one level, this is a really good thing, isn't it? Because as Jesus himself said, how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye, when, out of the, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother or sister's eye. Nobody, especially Jesus, wants us to be judgmental. Nobody wants us to be a hypocrite. However, the fact that we should be careful not to judge, the fact that we don't want to push to change each other, the fact that we accept each other for the rough diamonds that we are, we like to say that phrase in Australia, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't change. You and I are not perfected. We are a work in progress. We are God's half-finished painting and there's still lots of changes to be made until we become a masterpiece to be displayed in the gallery of heaven. So let me tell you something about coming to church. If you've come to church today, if you've joined us for the first time, we welcome you just as you are. We accept you warts and all. With all your limitations and all your flaws, But if you stick around, don't expect to stay the same. Don't expect not to change. Expect God to change you. Expect to be transformed like a caterpillar into a butterfly. Expect that in a few years' time, God will change you so much that you'll look back on a few years ago and you'll you'll say to yourself, you'll look at a photo of yourself and you'll say, I can't even remember what I was like back then how you talked, what your priorities were, what you loved. And one of the main reasons why we go to church, while we're Christians, while we're disciples of Jesus, is because that in a church community, we will experience Christ's love for us. You'll hear about Christ's love from the Bible as it is read and preached. You'll sing about Christ's love in the songs as we've already just done. You'll open up your heart to Christ's love in prayer. You'll demonstrate Christ's love in action. You'll receive the practical servant-heartedness of Christ's heart from other people around you. And as you participate in this demonstration of Christ's love shown to others, you will encounter it for yourself. And it will change you. And this is what the passage is about today. We're in the second of a three-part series, a short series on Christian love. Today we shall see that the fundamental to Christian love is Christ's love. And that's a love that changes us. And it's a love that shows us how we should love each other too. Let's look at the passage, start of verse 14. Paul starts, For Christ's love compels us. The Apostle Paul has been captivated. He's been changed forever. Before he met Christ on the road to Damascus, what was he? He was a murderous, uh, judgmental, religious crazy. He was filled with hate for Christians. 
He was a bigot. And after he encountered Christ's love, that hate was replaced with love. It became the central driver of his life. It pushes him forward, Christ's love. It keeps him going. But it also restrains him. There's a part of him that's restrained and a part of him that's pushed forward. Because Christ's love restrains him from acting for himself. And that restraint to self propels him forward to be devoted to Christ. There is no other course of action open to him but to pursue his ministry and his life calling. The love of Christ turns us inside out. So we stop living for ourselves and start living for him. This idea of love as a driving force for our lives is something that I can relate to as a dad. Before our boys were born, Joe and I lived a very different kind of lifestyle to the one we live now. We were a lot more in control of our lives in many respects. You know, we could sit around at home of an evening and uh, go, oh, let's go to the movies. So we'd just get our keys, get our wallet, walk out the door, get in the car and go to the movies. And we might stay out and have a glass of wine and talk about the movies and then just come home again. What a great life we led. We used to go on big holidays. We went to Thailand, Bangladesh, Spain, America. Ah, so good. And then, in 2010, Leo was born. And a few years later, Ezra. And our lives changed completely. We could no longer just spontaneously go to the movies. Now, any plan to leave the house involves packing a bag, changing nappies, running around and chasing kids, stopping one from crying, stopping the other one from smashing something, you know, convincing them that where we're going is a good idea. Now we go more to playgrounds than we do to the movies. Now we don't get to sleep in on Saturday mornings. Well, at least one of us gets to, the other one doesn't. But the thing is, we love them so much and the boys love us so much that there's a dynamic of love there that even though getting up in the night is tiring, even though life can be smelly with all the nappies and oh yuck and the food not being eaten and things thrown about, the love that we have for our children that they have for us propels us to devote ourselves more to them than to our own needs. Our lives have been transformed by becoming parents. Even though sometimes we don't want to do it, deep down we really want to do it as parents. We want to love them as best as we can. And this is a normal human parenting instinct, right? Now, if this is the case for a parent and child dynamic, it's even more infinitely true for the love that Christ has for us. Can you see how, if you really are a follower of Jesus, participating in his love, in the life of the church, through, the, through what you devote your heart to, transfixed by his love, will change you forever. You will not stay the same. Paul embellishes on this. Look at verse 14b. What does he mean by Christ's love? He says, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. 
He knew he was an object of Christ's love because one died for all, one being Christ. In the past, before he converted, the crucified Jesus was like a flawed, fake Messiah in his mind. And it was the object of his hate. But then he was convinced, he says, to use the word to the passage. He changed his mind. He didn't think of him as an executed heretic. He thought of him as his saviour. Christ had died for him. Christ had died for him. And more than that, Christ had died for all. One writer says it like this. There is no power so great, no motivation as strong as the knowledge that someone loves me. Paul's understanding that Jesus, in his death, loved him, was now the controlling force in the apostle's life. Paul saw Christ's love portrayed most vividly in his death. In another letter, Paul wrote um, this in Galatians 2. The Son of God loved me and gave himself. In other words, died for me. Paul remember Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He feels this personally for himself. He feels it corporately also for all Christians. When he says one died for all and therefore all died, what does he mean? In other words, the death of one is the death of all those who are in him. What he did on the cross was in our place. He was standing in our place. So everyone through all time who are in Christ died with him. I think God has hardwired us as individuals to identify with the actions of a great hero. So you think about when there's a, an election um, and there's a, a leader that we all love, which is very rare in Australia, I know, but um, it's like millions of people connect with that leader and rejoice, and the victory of that leader is the victory of many. This week we've had the Democratic National Convention, and you see that language of we in the Democratic National Convention in America that language that we can do this, we can beat Trump and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I guess the, the, the best example we've seen this in, our, in at least my lifetime is with Obama. Um, there was this sense in which he was almost rising up to take over the world. You know, remember when he spoke in Cairo uh, in that university in 2009, he thought he could do anything and we were all identifying with him, even Australians. Same happens when athletes win, isn't it, for, for us. I think it's more who we identify with in Australia. I can remember the 2000 Olympics sitting in a, in a pub in Brunswick Street and Cathy Freeman was running the 200 metre final and we all just stopped and looked at the TV and she won gold and we all rejoiced as if, you know, it was us winning the gold medal. Now this is just a kind of a, a human to human kind of identification. But Jesus Christ is human and he's the son of God. And when he dies, there's something about that death that is more um, tied to us than anything else. Not just his death, but his resurrection too. And the Bible uses the same language with Adam. Just as Adam sinned, so all have sinned. Just as Christ died and rose, so those who are in Christ died and rose with him. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 8, If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If we have died and risen with Christ, then we automatically start to change, don't we? You can't stay the same if this is what's happened to you. 
You will change. Let's look at how. Verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If you have died with Christ, then you have died to yourself. Paul is saying, Christ died, therefore all those people who he died for die for themselves, or die to themselves. Or you could say another way, Christ died, therefore all those people who he died for stop living for themselves. Now, no Christian is completely selfless. I'm not, and mostly I would say all of you aren't either. In fact, many Christians are self-centred and selfish, as we know. Nobody does this perfectly, and some struggle more than others. I'm reminded of my selfishness every day. When, whether it's the negotiation, who gets up first in the morning with the kids on a cold morning, and who does the chores... When I think about my finances and giving my money away, uh, I'm reminded of my own selfishness. I think, oh, maybe I just need a bit more for myself. And yet, deep down in my heart, I do have a sincere desire to be completely selfless and to live for Christ. And that's what the Christian life is all about. It's wrestling with that. All Christians respond to Christ's love Imperfectly, but if you have a sincere desire, then you, you can be a sincere Christian. If you don't have that sincere desire to be devoted to him, if you are not wrestling with this, then you have a problem. If you're living totally for yourself, if you're fully devoted to your family, if you're fully given over to your work, perhaps you have a cause that you believe in so much, you're completely devoted to that cause. If you're more devoted to that cause, to your family, to your work, whatever it is, more than Christ, then you have a problem. Jesus wants all of your heart. He explains this using the extreme and shocking language. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10 verse 37. Even more extreme, Luke 14 26, anyone who does not hate your own life cannot be my disciple. A true Christian is someone who is so compelled by the love of Jesus that you give your whole life to him. You have faith that Jesus is the Son of God. You have faith in his love. You have faith in his death. You have faith in his resurrection. This is the foundation and the source of the Christian life. And this will transform you. Part of dying with Christ is also being dead to sin. Paul says in Romans 6 that if we are united to Christ, then we are united to him in his death and united to him in his life. Therefore, you have died to sin. How can those who have died to sin live in it any longer, he says. Verse 15 of our passage makes this point again. Have you died with Christ? Have you died to yourself? Have you died to sin? Do you now live with Christ? If you have, you will experience radical change. Verse 16, look at that. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. One of the, um, when I did uh, first year uni, 
Um, I can remember back in 94, I uh, enrolled in the history of astronomy, uh, in the history and philosophy of science department of the arts department at Melbourne Uni. And I remember looking at Copernicus. And Copernicus was very important in the history of astronomy because he was the one who first proposed that the Earth was not the centre of the universe. Perhaps the Sun is the centre and the Earth is revolving around the Sun. This was a radical suggestion that the Earth is not the centre of the universe. And this became known as the Copernican Revolution. Now, Paul had experienced his own kind of Copernican revolution, or Pauline revolution. Even though he'd been an outwardly devout Jew, in reality, he thought everything in the universe revolved around him. He was living an egocentric life. But, using the words of verse 16, from now on, this is no longer the case. He no longer lives for himself, but lives for the one who loved him and died for him and raised again for him. Now, Christ is the centre of Paul's universe. Egocentricity has been replaced by Christocentricity. In Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis says this about his own revolution to Christocentricity. What mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism and lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference, but Christianity placed at the centre what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. When you encounter Christ's love, you experience a radical reorientation. And then also you get a whole lot of insight as well. You change your view of who Christ is. You once regarded Christ from a worldly point of view. Perhaps he was a wise teacher. Perhaps he was a, a smart rabbi. Maybe even this was a conspiracy by the Roman Empire to, I don't know what, people have had all kinds of theories. These are the worldly views. But with this radical new insight you get from Christ's love, you no longer see him this way. You see him as your Lord and Saviour. And if you have not experienced your own Christocentric revolution, then I invite you to do so today. Pray and ask God to open up your hearts. Maybe you've been looking at Christ from a distance and working out who he is. You need a miracle to have a Christocentric revolution. You're not going to work it out just using logic. Um, you might get so far. At the end of that journey, you will still need a miracle. God needs to transform your heart for you to believe it. Try praying. Give your life to him. Bask in the light of his love for you. Die with him. Rise with him. Live for him. And what's going to happen is explained in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. If love has replaced hate in Paul's life, if serving the one who died for him has taken the place of selfishness, if Paul now has a true understanding of Jesus, then he concludes that he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. He is born again. His life is now on a new path. He will continue to change and grow more and more into this new creation. And just so there's no confusion, he's not saying have a Christocentric revolution and you'll live happily ever after. 
He's not saying the transformation that will occur in your heart and in your life is going to mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you or that you'll go on to prosper financially or live a perfect middle-class life. The, the new creation does not immunise you from pain. What we can say, however, is that the new creation began generally for humanity at Easter when Christ rose from the dead and happens in each individual when we come to believe in that resurrection. And this new creation is fully realised at the end of time when Jesus returns. When you finally become that finished, perfected masterpiece that can hang in the gallery of heaven. Meanwhile, since sin and its outworkings have not yet um, gone away, not completely been abolished, we're all going to have to undergo, in different degrees, difficulty and hardship. Some of the new creation we can perceive clearly. We can feel our lives changing and our hearts being shaped and our love being redirected to something, to Christ. We can discover that all of a sudden we've got new motivations. But some of the new creation that we get does not lie in our conscious experience, but is something that we have faith and hope in. One day, Paul says, the earthly tent that we live in will be pulled down and God will present us with a new home. We have this eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, but you have to have faith and hope in that now. When that tent goes one day in the future, the new creation will become a physical and a visible reality to you. Now let me finish with some application. Some more application. I've had a bit of application. Some more. If Christ's love has captivated you, if you've experienced a Christocentric revolution, if you've stopped living for yourself and you start living for Christ, if you've experienced a radical reorientation and a radical change so that the old is gone and the new has come, if you are indeed a new creation, then direct that Christ-like love towards others. Now, I made a similar point last week. I said, because God loves us, therefore we should love others too. But now I'm developing this point a bit further. I'm going to sharpen it. Remember that Christ's love, according to Paul, changes us. It changed him, and it will change us. So that if we're to love each other in a Christ-like way, we should experience change. We should have that same desire for each other that we will grow in Christ-likeness in our life. The love that we show each other in a Christian community shouldn't just be about making us feel better. That's maybe a good thing to aim for. It shouldn't just be about healing sore wounds, although that's a good thing to aim for too. The kind of Christ-like love we should show each other should be one that has a desire to see us all embrace the new creation life. Our partial care for each other must involve speaking Christ's love, speaking his word, applying the Bible to our lives. We must show practical love, yes, to each other. We should bring meals around. We should help each other out practically. But as the old 1970s worship song says, make me a channel of your peace. Remind people of the hope that they have in Christ. Remind people that they are a new creation. 
And this includes reminding your friend at church that they have died to sin. If you know a friend at church who is living in a way that is sinful, you need to remind them that they've died to sin. If you know someone in your community group who's not living as a new creation, it is good to show Christ-like love and, and, and help them embrace that, that, that force, that Christ-like force that's going to push them towards growing in holiness. Speak the challenging words of Christ to each other, not just the warm and fuzzy words. That's real love, real Christ-like love. Love with wounds, love with, with a bit of pain in it. Remind each other of what obedience looks like. And it doesn't put you in the position of judge if you do this. You can show your Christ-like love to each other by humbly rebuking your friend. You can say, I want to challenge you, but I want to still love you. I want to challenge you, and I'll still love you. God wants you to live in this new life, and I want you to as, as well. The only reason why you would not do this is because you're protecting yourself. Because you're worried about what they might say, that your friendship will finish. You're more concerned about your own reputation in the community, perhaps. You don't want to be seen as a judge. Have confidence. Have confidence to speak the truth in love. Learn some key Bible verses that you can use to encourage each other. Help each other to make good decisions in life. Build each other up and teach each other so that you can grow in your knowledge of Christ. Be captivated by Christ's love. Be propelled by it. Know that you have died and risen with him. Die to sin. Live with him. Put Christ at the centre of your universe and know that you are a new creation. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much uh, for sending Jesus to the earth um, to live and to teach us and then to die for us. And thank you that in that death, and resurrection, we see perfect love. We pray that that love will transform our lives. We pray that we can be a community that embraces our new lives as new creations. And pray that we can have the confidence to speak into each other's lives as we care for each other, that we can push each other forward until you return. Amen.